Hey everyone, welcome back to Stalin Origins, the podcast that takes a look at the past, present, and the possible exploration of new possibilities in learning and development based on that knowledge, based on, on that beautiful history. And we have an amazing guest today. I know him now for several years, maybe five if not more. And um, he has been a true advocate of performance in the workplace. He has been influenced by legendary names or great names in terms of the evolution of performance enablement and uh, work performance improvement and work performance. And today we're talking about human performance technology. So uh, it's a great honor for me to welcome uh, not only my shipmate, is also a Navy veteran, and thank you for your service, sir, is Guy Wallace. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. Guys, so thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I know you are retired, but also pretty busy, uh, you know, share, sharing your knowledge out there in the world, very active on LinkedIn. And that's what folks, uh, you can check the links on the notes and find information on how to get in touch with the uh, guy or follow his uh, feeds because he also runs a great website, uh, HPT Treasures, if I'm correct, right? Is that? Yes. Good. And so uh, you'll see maybe some of my work in there, uh, some of my silly interviews. <laughs> no, so you see some of my stuff in there and obviously some uh, great resources there. If you're interested in knowing more about human performance technology. Now, this topic, um, you know, if we just look in history, we're just going back maybe 50, 60 years, but there are some uh, early roots in different evolutions of how we do training and development, learning and development. And, you know, we change the name all the time, but really, if you think about it, uh, you do training to practice the tasks that need to be done in the job in the workplace, and not everything has to be a course or an academic endeavor in the workplace. So, Guy, I'm going to ask you because I mean I think you and I at this point could probably start our own podcast called Wallace and Salas Detective. <laughs> Detectives of performance. No, but uh, I was thinking of that before I talked to you. But I wanted to ask you guys, what is human performance technology? All right. Human performance technology is... Uh, so let me break it down first. So back in the day when it first started, it was called performance technology. And in the mid-90s, uh, a president of NSPI, ISPI, put the H on it, human performance technology. And that was very controversial at the time. Uh, because the true practitioners of it look beyond the human element to see what was in the performance context or the environment that affected performance. So the human variable is just one set of variables, if you will. Um, but so performance is all about, as, as Gilbert or Rumler might have talked about, accomplishments or outputs. So you know, there's behaviors that require knowledge and skills, and that's all in place to produce an output, which is Rumler and Breathauer used to talk about. An output is an input downstream, whether internally to the company or, or enterprise or externally. So performance is all about that, the production of outputs, which Gilbert labeled accomplishments, which is another a part of our language issues and difficulties because that doesn't easily translate to many people. So if you produce an output, what is the product of your efforts? Um, and technology back in the day didn't mean digital technology or any kind of mechanical device. It meant the application of science. So performance technology or human performance technology is really all about the science of performance and affecting performance and making it you know, as the quality movement would have said, better, faster, and cheaper. Okay, good. So, yes, and that has been, uh, that obviously, I mean, I think if, if, you know, many people today, obviously, what we call learning and development, it's um, a label that I don't really know where it was influenced from. Uh, I, I have uh, suspicion. Well, that was, that was the, the transition from the word training to learning was basically due to Peter Senge and his book, The Fifth Discipline, and about the learning organization, because all of my clients, beginning in 1990, when that book came out, through the middle 90s, 
changed their names from training and development or something like that to learning and development. And it was, you know, the focus should be on the learner and, you know, the the individual we need to attend to their needs. Well, yeah, but their needs in, in an enterprise are to learn how to perform and do the work in the processes of the organization. And so it kind of shifted, but good, good performance-based training is the same as good performance-based learning um, in that it really helps people master the performance requirements that they have back on their job. And, and so, you know, you can change the labels and all of that. Uh, um, and because, you know, I, I, my joke is that the whole training and development profession went into a witness protection program and changed their name to learning and development without really changing much other than their name. The other thing that I would say is that, you know, human performance technology, if you if you really looked at, you know, what people might call uh, performance consulting, which is today has is often watered down to just performance based instruction, training or learning. They looked at all the other variables. They looked at what it was, it was causing motivational issues. What was the culture and consequence system in place that motivated or demotivated people? They looked at what the environmental factors were, and and they that's a big broad category, the environment, you know. And but that was the label that I learned back in 1979 because of Gilbert's book, Tom Gilbert's book from 78, Human Competence. And he had his behavior engineering model, which had you know six basic sets of factors, variables that needed to be looked at to affect performance. Okay. But I saw the Ishikawa diagram, which came out of the 1950s in Japan as part of the quality movement. Uh, basically, Duran and Deming and others were over there consulting, trying to bring the Japanese out of their uh, situation after World War II to improve quality of what they were producing. And the Ishikawa diagram I came across at Motorola in 81 was being used in quality circles to diagnose problems or opportunities and then fix it. And their model was, you know, every process could be broken down into four M's. This was very non-politically correct, if you will, from back then. But men, materials, methods, and machines. And when I first saw that, I realized that's the, that other than the men part, that's the environment that everybody's talking about in terms of performance technology or human performance technology. And so that was an epiphany for me to say, oh, there's these other variables and, you know, if you listen to Deming or Rummler or any of the gurus, Harold Stolovich, others would say that their analysis efforts uncovered that 20% of the time, knowledge and skills deficits were the issue of performance problems. Deming would have said, first he said 86%, then he moved it to the 94%. He was a statistician, so, you know, I tended to kind of believe him. But, but regardless of the specifics of the numbers, the majority of performance problems aren't due to individual performers, they're due to the environment. And when we develop instruction or training or learning to help our clients with their performance problems or opportunities, you know, that's not likely, not likely to help. That's That might be part of the solution that's required, but basically if there's a bad process or bad data, tools are uh, inadequate, then more training, more knowledge and skills isn't going to help resolve that and make things better, faster, and cheaper. Right. Yeah. To the average person, usually if you're not informed, let's say in, in even, I mean, just to consider learning theory, just to begin with, right. Uh, the first reaction would be sort of uh, based on experience, based on uh, academic experience. So meaning you had a degree, you went to school, that's what gave you the knowledge and that's why it allowed you to do things and in reality. Well, there's part of that, but really without the actual application of what you're doing in context and with the experience and the reflection and the coaching, there's not really progress that you can do. I mean, some people will do amazing just by listening to one thing one time and executing and some people, but that's not the rule, right? That's not the rule for everyone. Yeah. It, it, again, as you said, that's prior knowledge, you know, from education or experience, you know, makes people different in terms of they can look at the same instruction or learning and participate in that. And they're, you're going to have a different result because of all of those kinds of incoming knowledge and skills of people. Uh, and then there's the other issues. I remember talking with Dr. Richard Clark about this, that he said uh, that about 20 years ago, he told me that, you know, five to 15% of people can learn out of context. 
and see its application in a brand new context. And so, you know, that's a difficult because we can see people who, you know, learn from education versus training and are able to apply it and others can't. They have to, you know, do trial and error learning and and social learning, ask their neighbor, you know. Um, but there's also issues with that because, you know, it's not rote performance most of the time. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not rote performance. And the people that are going to learn it are at different starting points. Right. And I remember, uh, you know, in my analyses, you know, if somebody needed to know ACDC electrical theory for the job and you were hiring people off the street plus degreed engineers, well, the degreed engineers are going to know ACDC electrical theory, but the people off the street may or may not, most likely not. And so therefore there's a different starting point in terms of how you differentiate the front end of what's nowadays known as the learning journey or learning path, which, which we used to call training and development paths back in the 80s. Right. It's a, it's a, um, it's a development of, you know, that the engineer will have already cognitive schemata, uh, maps already. If you think of this, um, we'll turn all these terms around for us, but if you think of schemata, just think of, if you ever play a video game and you're discovering a map, it's pretty much like that. You see the clear area where you're at, but everything else is dark. And as you continue to practice in one specific direction or another, you start clearing out that map. And, and achieving more because now you have a, very, a, a better vision of what it is. Um, mm -hmm. It's great that you mentioned this stuff about those four M's, Guy, because although, yes, we know that the terminology, you know, was centered around men. And really, if you think about it, if you really look at it without any type of emotional response and prejudice, men really meant not man, male people, but employee. That's right. perhaps you have the notion of the term manpower. Um, so if we go back, uh, you know, our first, ep the first episode of this, uh, of this podcast was on the book that I sent you, The Man, The Instructor, and The Job by Charles uh, R. Allen. And again, this uh, gentleman was a vocational educator, uh, which was another folk out there. I guess it was very popular to go by abbreviations back then, you know, C.R. Prowler or C.A. Prowler and C.R. Allen, <laughs> they never dis display their full names. But um, this folks uh, has some great philosophies and observations that came from vocational education, was not part of the cadre of academia, you know, the the masters of uh, academia and, and, and philosophy and whatnot. And they were the ones that play an intricate role in the way we prepare folks to uh, first develop the shipyards uh, for World War One. Uh, that training process that basically happened at the point of work, happened in, in direct performance. And the main focus was to say, don't teach the tradesmen what they do, teach them how to put it over, teach them how to teach others, how to let others uh, practice, get coaching, enable their performance. So we can see that to be sort of the, the, ignition although you know we don't have a clear relationship obviously you know Gilder wasn't around at that time uh you know Rumler, none of those folks were around Gagné was uh, probably born at that time <laughs> uh as I remember and then you have TWI that is a program training within industry in 1940 uh where we call this another episode you guys check out um and and in that program we know that there's a process where all these training directors come from different industries, AT&T, uh, at the time called the, uh, I guess, I think it was uh, Bell or something like that, you know, at or it was already, already AT&T, but spelled out. And, um, and you got these folks that are volunteering for the, well, they came, they came to DC, to Washington to just, you know, help out, right. <laughs> for uh, maybe, uh, three months. And then, uh, five years later, they were still there. Uh, so, um, that was, this is all an interesting thing because again, that movement, that capacity is what helped us win World War II. So training, uh, the ability to enable other people to perform, uh, the tasks were in place. What we have to put in context though, is that what we have today is definitely not what we had then. Uh, back then in 1940s, we had a huge problem with literacy. People were not literate enough even to join the army. That's what the army then caught on into systemic approach to training, right? 
and we mm-hmm. have development of system SAT, yeah. Yeah. So from that perspective, really when get when things get juicy, I say, is the nineteen sixty and forward, uh, where you have, you know, Gilbert, you have uh all these folks coming along. You have the you mentioned the ISPI, which is the International Society of Performance Improvement, uh, correct? Yes. Just, yeah, because I'm just going for, for memory here. But uh, interesting enough, the first name, uh, this is a trivia question for you because you're you're all involved with that. You should know this. Well, you maybe know this. I don't know. <laughs> I, it took me by surprise. What was the original name of the ISPI, the first name that it took? Uh, it was the National Society for Programmed Instruction, but it may have actually had a name before that. Hmm. But uh, NSPI started in in 1962, and it was the brainchild of an Air Force, I think, Colonel. Um, um, oh, the name is going to escape me right now. But uh, but uh, he uh, he he started the organization to uh, help uh, the Air Force training efforts. And I think one of the so program instruction was a kind of a big thing. Came before Skinner, but basically Skinner kind of popularized the teaching machines and all those kinds of things. Um, and the military began to embrace this. The federal government, you know, uh, soon caught on and began to embrace this, the, the war and poverty, et cetera, um, the job corps, all those kinds of, uh, government kinds of institutions began to embrace, uh, uh, an approach they thought was going to really impact and have, you know, measured results. Okay. What the leaders at NSPI found, according to what Gary Rummler told me uh, decades later, but back in the mid-60s, they began to realize that even if they produced stellar instruction, programmed instruction, um, it wasn't having the impact. And so they began to, to look at this and realize that there was all these other variables, and you could make somebody smarter and capable of performing, but if they were limited by the tools, the data, et cetera, that they had, or if the if the consequence system punished good behavior, then you had to kind of fight all those other variables and address all those other variables. And so learning is just one, knowledge and skills is just but one factor uh, of many in terms of, you know, how to affect performance. But, you know, L&D folks should stay in their lane and they should do the learning and development, produce, you know, stellar learning and development. But when they're doing their upfront analysis, looking at the situation, trying to decide what's really going on here and how do I actually move the appropriate needles in the right direction, they can uncover other variables that need to be addressed. And so that's what what human performance technology always meant to me was, uh, as Harless called it, the front end analysis. Um, there's been a bunch of names for the basically the same kind of thing. But if, when you look at the performance situation in the current state and you begin to s- determine, you know, where is, does this need to get to? You know, what's that future state ideal look like? And what are the gaps between those? And what are the causes? And what of them are knowledge and skill deficits? And one of them could be, you know, the process itself or uh, data and information tools and equipment, materials and supplies, the culture and the consequences, all these other variables. But they, And then there's the human variable in that too, and they bring knowledge and skills, but they may not have the physical stamina to do the job depending on the job. They may not have, you know, you can't be a sonar man or person in the Navy if you've got bad hearing. Uh, you know, you can't be a scout with the binoculars on the, on the deck of an aircraft carrier in World War II looking for enemy airplanes if you've got bad sight. So there's other things, uh, other variables of a human that need to be adequate to the needs of the process of the work performance that people are, are in, you know, needing to do. So it's a, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know by any facts or by any means or by any evidence that any of what we're talking about in the sixties was influenced by this 1919 uh, book or this 1919 practice. But if we look at it, a lot of the things you're mentioning are part of that, that you yeah. I mean, this is like we reinvent, we forget and reinvent and rediscover these things. And, and we call rediscoveries reinventions, if you will. But but one of the early people, the late Roger Kaufman, who worked at the uh, uh, Florida uh, State University, uh, who worked with Gagne and, and, and Branson and all these other people, he was came from industry. 
And he was at one of the uh, airline companies back in the 50s and early, early, early 60s. And when NSPI was created, the founder uh, told Roger Kaufman, you are going to be the president of the New York chapter because we're starting chapters. And he was told he was going to do this. So he was there since day one of the organization. And I am sure as a, a person in industry who was in charge of training and development of people, working with the, the process engineers, if you will, back in those days, whatever they were called, uh, he was probably cognizant of TWI and uh, uh, training within his, within industry. And because of the nature of that work, I mean, it was all about, you know, coming out of World War II and, and the aftermath and all that stuff. All that stuff would have been residual stuff. It also led led to the lean movement, as it's known, you know, Toyota production system, lean. And so obviously lean was has been uh, a very coveted uh, approach in many spaces, uh, you know, eliminating waste. Obviously, we talked about we can yeah. see waste as, you know, wasting money, wasting time and uh, wasting space and production and uh, fluidity. Right. So, yeah, you know, these the machines in 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 uh, relation to where people need to perform different tasks. Uh, so let's say they have to use a monitor. That monitor is like 20 feet away from the actual point of where the machine right. is. I mean, that will create an issue. You can Some, pick... something or somebody needs to move. But uh, yeah. yeah, so so Deming's experience and Duran's experience, I believe, is this is true of him too, came out of Western Electric manufacturing for AT&T. Now, in the old days, we used to joke that you could drop a telephone if this was in the 1960s. You could drop your telephone out of your dorm window at college four or five stories and the thing would hit the ground and it would still work because the federal government when you know AT&T was a monopoly monopoly and they had to they had to depreciate that telephone over 40 years. So the engineers built it the last 40 years because they couldn't write it off any sooner. And and so a lot of uh, the a lot of things that came out of the quality movement really came out of Western Electric and uh, people like Deming and Duran went on to, you know, spread their their approaches, their thoughts on statistical quality control, blah, 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 to Japan. I mean, they made their their names really not in America, but over in Japan and having tremendous impact on quality improvement in Japan. But there's a lot of parallel efforts going on. A lot of people were kind of doing similar things un, unbeknownst to each other. Um, and so, it, you know, so I think there's a lot of things that kind of, you know, came influenced perhaps directly or indirectly, and it's all kind of evolved since then. But yeah, so the HPT thing is really, if you look at what Gary Rummer was doing in his latter part of his life, you would have called that lean. Now, he was doing it before it was, was popularized as that name. But when Motorola created Six Sigma back in 1988, I think, or 86, something like that, they licensed Gary Rummler's intellectual property because they had taken um, all the tools, uh, there a massive amount of tools. There's seven basic tools of, of quality and the next seven and blah, 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 and lots of other tools and methodologies. And they put it into a process and that became DMAIC. Now, DMAIC, you know, define, analyze, measure, improve, control. So the last letter uh, of Debaic is similar to the the original last letter of Addy, as we know it, as you know, was control. How do you put something in place now? How do you control it? And this was, you know, creating behavior change and then the maintenance of behavior, which was one of the things that the NSPI, ISPI crowd talked about is that you can change behaviors, but it's going to backslide. So how do you, what control mechanisms do you put in place then to make sure that it doesn't backslide, that you get that improvement and it doesn't deteriorate on you. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of crossover between HPT and the total quality management movement. Um, you know, there were things that Deming has said that are similar to the things that Rumler said at about the same time. And I don't know that they really knew of each, you know, I don't think Deming knew of Rumler. Rumler eventually learned about all about Deming because of his work at GE and Motorola back in the uh, back in the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah, and that's also, I mean, you know, from the beginning, I guess, in that con uh, concurrent time of uh, of um, the uh, Emergency Fleet Corporation, which is the the work of the uh, C.R. Allen in nineteen nineteen. There's a 
Taylor's uh, scientific management. Yep. Uh, starts all this uh, measurement and whatnot, uh, obsession in business to uh, measure results, right? Um, yeah. I, I, so, and I'm sure that elsewhere in the world, people were working on these things too, and we just may not know of them. Be open and learn from as broad a field as you can, a broad a, a set of ins, uh, ins, of sources as you can. Interesting part is, you know, we know about these things, and uh, but uh, it, if, if folks are going to just rely on a Google search, they're not going to find um, the references for this. It's just, uh, it seems like folks are taking just, in front, and I mean, this happened to me all the time where people take um, original ideas that I have, and then they use them on their uh, platform, on their thing. And, and, uh, and that's great for me. It's uh, God bless them. For me, it's great to see them, uh, you know, shine if they, they're doing something with it. I'm glad that they see that. Uh, and I think it happens to everybody. Right. But, um, yeah, I used to, I asked Rumler at one point, you know, what, what did it bother him that so many people had borrowed from him and created their own thing? And he said all he really cared about cared about was appropriate attribution. He wanted people to borrow things and expand on them and extend them beyond what he had done with them. But but he was busy always evolving his own stuff. He didn't create his stuff and then stick with it. He kept on changing it, changing and changing it and evolving it, making it better. And so, you know, whatever you might have borrowed from Gary Rumler back in the day and used, he had gone beyond that already. So so he wasn't interested in in you know, claiming credit for a lot of things here. Uh, he, if he did create things and publish things, and a lot of times you couldn't get them unless you went to his workshops, so they weren't in publications. It wasn't out there for the public to access. You had to actually attend a workshop and take away the, you know, the three-inch binder or whatever. And in there is where you'd find, you know, the golden nuggets. But, but, I, but that, but that's true. That happens to everybody where people are are borrowing. I just mentioned to somebody the other day that. When I was at Motorola in 81, I, I met with my manufacturing operation manager client group, 30 people, and I used Gilbert's word exemplar. And my client stopped me right there and he said, you know, we hate that word. That's a $3 college word today. It'd be $30. But and so I said, well, how about master performer? And they said, yeah, that will work. So I've been using master performer. Well, it wasn't that was 81. Just a few years ago, three or four years ago. I was going through my metal file cabinets, paper copies of things, and I came across something written by Dale Brethauer at ISPI, NSPI at Luminary, and it said Master Performer in it. And I had not realized that's where I'd gotten that from, and I'd been using it all these years and trying to be consistent in my use of you know language, And but that's where it came from. And I had forgotten. I'm, I may have known in 81, but over time, I'd just forgotten where I might have gotten that. And so... We are influenced by lots of people, lots of times, and, you know, we just need to be open to understanding, you know, what are the roots of this? Because there are nuanced details of people's approaches and methodology and such that that we sometimes water down for expediency's sake, and then we forget about it, but yet there's gold in that, and there's an appropriate uh, use for a lot of things that get shortcutted. It gets shortcutted right out of the process, and we lose the value of that. Shortcutted and also diffuse, uh, or let's say um, it's an attempt to simplify it, and then when the attempt is to simplify, it sometimes becomes simpler. It's kind of I think Einstein says something about that, right? Make it simple, but not simpler, or something like yeah. that, or something like that. But um, yeah, but primarily, uh, yeah, we have so we have the evolution in the academic side because I mean, when we see in this, when I see HPT, I see a conver uh, a convergence of engineering engineering processes and educational processes and well, let's say instructional processes, because we have to separate those two. So instruction, the programmatic instruction, you know, from the academic side, we see the progression of Tyler's, uh, Ralph Tyler's 1949 systemic curriculum, which was really a, you know, an evaluation process of systemic curriculum, which I don't understand if why is it not so much prevailing in education today, but uh, it's there, something for people to read and find. And then from there, we have the military, um, you know, in the 60s, you got the army contracting, creating an organization that not many people know about. Everybody knows about SHARM, but not many people know about HARMRO. And that is the Human Resources and Research Organization, established in 1968 to uh, partner with RAND, with the uh, RAND and creating or formalizing 
uh, systems approach to training that then leads to uh, or permeates into what we see now. When, well, now we see now, but we saw in 1973 in formulation when uh, had the discussion with Robert Branson, rest in peace, uh, Robert Branson, and the creation of uh, the inner service procedures for instructional systems design, which in there we know that we have ADDIC, which is the precursor for, or the actual, really, origin of ADDI. Um, right. Although, as a, you know, it's attributed to a military acronym that came from God knows where. Uh, we do see that the control, or the ADDIC, the control stage is all about evaluation. Yeah, because you need evaluation data in order to, right. to you know, feed backward, feed forward to systems to get, keep them in control. Very engineering-ish term. Yeah. You know, a lot of the gurus in NSPI, ISPI that, that were my mentors were degreed engineers who okay. left engineering and came to the, you know, the dark side or the light side, however you want to call it, to get involved with programmed instruction and instruction and performance-based training and performance-based learning and development. Well, it was a, it, you know, you can probably see what there is a commercial boom of sorts, right? Because of the ar the the army implementing the IP ISD, which wasn't originally meant to be that. It was meant to be something for the army. And someone had a great idea, and we say, quote unquote, great idea, air quotes, of making this available for services. As you and I know, um, uh, people don't know this, but not all services jive. We don't, we don't, jive. we, we love each other. We, we know what we do, but we are different. Uh, name, a lot of inter interest service rivalries. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, yes, we have jokes with each other. We love each other. We're, you know, we're brothers at the end. But what the Coast Guard does and whatever the Army does and whatever the Ar the Marines do, that's a whole different game. It's all our realm. So creating a standard that is going to be used by all services, that was not an, a good idea at all. And actually led to uh, its demise. That's why. Well, I think it led to derivations from that standard as as people customize it. So that, and I think that that's an important concept for people is that, you know, there's places, uh, there's points in a process that should be quite rigorous and never, never change. And there's other points of the process that should be much more flexible. Tom Peters called it uh, either tight, loose or loose tight uh, in terms of approaching processes. But we need to recognize when we put a process in place, you know, my saying is, you know, processes need to be as rigorous as required and as flexible as feasible. So there's, you know, we can't take a process and treat it rotely and do the same thing all the time. There's situate, you know, we, we need it to be situationally appropriate. We need to recognize what are the variables in the situation and what adjustments do we need to make? Because if we just stick with our standard rote process, it may not be successful. And so I think that that's one of the things of looking at, at, at instruction, learning, processes and all of that stuff is what are the variations in the context in which it's supposed to operate? Because if it's, you know, if you're training uh, uh, somebody to uh, string telephone wire on poles, you know, it's a little bit different if it's sunny out and 110 degrees out or whether it's uh, freezing rain or whether it's, you know, 60 degrees below zero with the wind chill. So there's a different way to do things depending on what is what are those variances in the performance context. Yeah, and so um, and it reminds me also because in terms of parallels, there's a there was a French philosopher, uh, Jackie Lowell, that wrote uh, the book uh, The Technological Society, and uh, in there he proposes the idea that you know what really um, Technology is really just a reflection of technique, right? And we create technique out of, obviously, experience and notion and practicality. So, you know, we go back to the, we go back to the, the early, early people <laughs> and the first time they saw fire, right? I mean, that's just fire. And then what, what is that? I don't, I don't know idea what that is, but someone figured out that they could use it maybe for keeping warm or keeping. So the exposure to that element created then the creation of a technique and that technique is, you know, has transpired in everything that we do. We're highly technological in a sense because we have human technique. So what I would say to people is the uh, human performance technology 
um, it's it's not so much what it is and what tools you use, but the technique that you apply to it. You can have a technique that is based on education, or you can have a technique that is based on a performance-driven, um, you know, effort. And and the thing about it, I think the, the challenge today, guy, and I think yeah, you know, I talked to this to you about this before is. Um, there's a tech, you know, there, there's a technical, uh, terms that we, you and I, that I know when you say what you say, I know exactly what it means, input, output, and, you know, task and analysis and performance and da, 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 right. And what performance is too, because someone today, maybe 22 years old, joined a workforce and never heard any of these terms, or perhaps just know that input and output are channels in a device, right. Or, uh, or a TV or something. So mm-hmm. uh, the question is, is, you know, what I think the challenge is, how do we make that? How do we evolve and progress this HPT concepts into something now that will be um, English for anybody that, you know, that audience that we're talking about, right? That, that, because I think the audience, what you mentioned and what I, what I know and what we talk about will definitely click on with someone in our age bracket. I think it's something that will be there that that perhaps it's not as hard to assimilate. But the way the organizations may use performance today may not even be related to what performance is in the context of HPT. Well, I think uh, so when young people leave education and get into the workforce, they need to learn the language of their business. Mm-hmm. What do they call inputs, processes, and outputs? Do they call processes work streams or workflows? or something else. Um, so I mean, you can confuse new people when you say, hey, here's a term and here's the 27 different variations of it. And that leads to this next term, which there's, you know, 14 different variations on that. So, but, so most of my work, I've been reinforcing this because most of my work has been for big corporations and most of them were technical organizations. And most of them were dominated by their manufacturing or engineering processes. And the quality organizations that were there for quality control and quality assurance, you know, so they use that kind of language. So the language that I use, uh, input, process, and output, et cetera, resonated with my clients and with the decision makers and the leaders in that. So what young people coming out of school need to learn is they need to figure out, you know, the language of their workplace is really critical. And and as I tell people, you know, I've spent my entire career adopting what I could and adapting the rest. And so I've learned something from somebody, but I'd have to adapt it back to my set of models and language and retrofit it into my approaches to things, because otherwise it doesn't hang together. It doesn't make any sense for me to call it process and one and the next two sentences later call it workflow. So, but but I have to be cognizant of where is what's the language of our field and our profession, which is totally different than the language of our our employers, the enterprises that we work for and with, and and so we need to you know talk our jargon in our industry forums and such. But when we go to our clients, we need to speak in their language. We need to learn the language of our business, learn how things are measured. You know, the uh, and that's the challenge for new people. And as a consultant, you have to do that for each and every one of your clients. And they could all be somewhat similar, but different. And but when you're an employee, you really need to focus on what you've learned and begin to translate it into language, because none of your clients want to know anything about your mumbo jumbo about learning and development. They they really don't care how you make the sausage. And they want you to talk about producing the sausage for them and using their language so that they don't have to spend their time and energies figuring you out. You need to learn and adapt to their language and retrofit everything you do into their language. So I've had taken my Addy-like process, it's Addy-like, it started as Addy, but it's different, and convert it to the language of my customers. And if they have a new product development process, which is really what Addy is, uh, or Attic, um, it, it, so when my clients had one of those things, I had to convert my language instead of calling it analysis, they may call it something different like uh, customer requirements. 
that's where they figure out what the customer requirements are. Well, that's my analysis phase. And so I needed to convert and say, either say that's the equivalent, or I just change my language and speak in their language. Because yeah. most of my clients had a new product development process. They had they were similar but different. And I had to speak to their processes in the language that was familiar to them and translate what I'm going to do in design is what you guys call such and such. And they would go, okay, we get that now. You know, but we didn't understand your your uh, learning and development mumbo jumbo guy, and so that's the trick for everybody. New people coming out of the education system or going from one job to the next. That's what you've got to figure out: is what's the local language and how do I learn to speak it and translate what I know into that language, and not expect people to be you know amazed by you know the wonderfulness of what we do and how we do it. They really don't care unless it doesn't go so well, they may want to yeah, know that's that. The, that's the general uh, frustration. I think in, in many respects, when you look at it, uh, many LND or learning professionals may be frustrated as a teacher is frustrated explaining what they do. You know what I mean? That no one understands in terms of the context of what they do on a daily basis. And that's uh, an age old thing too. The late uh, Claude Lineberry, who was the associate of Joe Harless um, at NSPI conferences and ISPI conferences with, would get up as a keynote speaker and read a letter from mama. And his mama could never figure out what the heck he did. She would use the language and terminology in weird, funny ways. And he just made a, a, a joke out of it, is that so few people understand what we do. And it's been a challenge for us to explain it. Well, I it, so I think part of the lesson was you don't need to explain it. You just need to do it. And if you talk in the language of your customers, you don't get caught up in in you know them understanding what you do they just can see the evidence the results of what you produce again you make the sausage they don't want to know how you make the sausage and what you call all those steps oh yeah of course yeah it's about the the results and the, and the other part that the learning professionals or if you're going to be center of performance have to um have to approach is that they use i mean i know this for practice by practice and, and a decade of dealing with internal clients is what the intake request is, is always a request for training because the perception of a, an average person is going to be based on their schooling and knowledge. Yeah. What's the, what's the title of your function on the door mm -hmm. training, learning or whatever. That's what they expect from you. Yeah, so I learned, I learned, yeah, I, I learned how to do this by taking a course. So you guys are making a course, right? Thank you. All right. So that's yeah, every, I think that's, you know, the education, Everybody's experienced the educational system, so they're pretty darn sure they know exactly what you do and what you produce, which is information, maybe a demonstration, maybe some exercises where you practice something, but but focused on the specific application of, of the target audience. Can't you just give them some information and that would be sufficient? Because that's what everybody's used to. And while that may be eventually effective, it's certainly never going to be efficient. And so we need to learn how to go all the way to the work. The work is that the people are doing, figure out what outputs are they producing? Who are the stakeholders for that? Are the regulatory stakeholders? Are the finance organization of our own company? The regu There's the downstream customer and the customer's customer and the customer's customer. You know, what are they expecting that we're to produce? And then what are the tasks, the behavioral and cognitive tasks necessary? And what knowledge and skills do you need to be able to do those tasks to produce those outputs that meet the stakeholder requirements? And if you meet the stakeholder requirements, well, that's a good outcome. And if you don't meet it, that's a bad outcome. And you can meet the regulatory requirements, but but not meet the customer's requirements. So it's never it's never easy to figure out this, especially with high stakes performance, because it could vary. The customer's requirements could vary customer to customer to customer, but the regulatory agencies, their requirements don't vary. And so if you don't figure all that stuff out here, you may give people some information, you may give them some demonstration, you may give them some practice exercises, but that may or may not help their performance in meeting what the stakeholders really want from them. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And so, you know, it's been an awesome conversation here, guy. I really want to thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, so there you have it, folks, human performance technology emerging from all these different uh, channels and, and really wonderful divergent channels that we don't know yet the connection of, but yet they lead to what we know today as HPT.
um, from academic systems, from war times, from <laughs> from engineering, from all this and the the business experience. Um, it's certainly something that I recommend everybody check the links in the notes here, the description of the episode, and um, really find out more about it, even though you may say, well, this is not something I'm going to put in practice today. It will really give you some insights because they definitely expanded my uh, knowledge when I first found out about this many years ago. And then even, you know, some of the findings that I'm uh, relaying today or that we talked about today happened just about this year or, you know, last year. So, uh, yeah. And so that's the key function. I think that you have to do as a learner and professional is continue to grow in your own practice inform yourself with the different perspectives because many of the successes of the past are actually a good guide for what we can do today. Uh, Guy, uh, one last thought here. Where do you think people, I mean, I always thought about this, but it was my, my last question. And I was thinking, you know, um, I don't think people can benefit today from even instructional designers from going to an instructional design program. Uh, or master's in instructional design. I think they're too based on educational theory and uh, really focus on some of the aspects that we discussed today. One of the degrees that perhaps seems to, or two of the degrees that perhaps I think have more value, maybe IO psychology, you know, um, and and organizational psychology, and uh, human factors, human factors uh, type of degrees, right? Because they, those analyze really uh, job components and human uh, components in the performance of tasks. It's very, it's very heavy in the avi- aviation industry, as you know. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And what other, what other suggestions you might have? Well, for learning and development professionals, I think it's, you know, uh, getting, becoming competent in the front end, project planning, conducting analysis, which then leads and informs design and development and implementation, et cetera. But um, so I think that you need to be looking at, you know, alternatives to training or instruction or learning and resources, job aids, performance support, performance guides, all this different language for, you know, reducing the requirements for memorization. Most tasks in my experience and having done hundreds of projects and conducting analyses on that, most tasks don't require memorization. You can read a reference documents and guide it. So so you need to differentiate when you're looking at performance, what needs to be memorized as demanded by the performance context and what what could be referenced in the performance context. Yeah, no, but I wanted to bring out uh, for you so in terms of what, are, what would be your suggestion? I mean, I know, look, you got like 20 plus books or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you're, you got a good library that you put down on this. But aside from reading books, where, what do you think people can learn? Let's see, even if they're, they're just looking to get involved into this or if it's a certification, do you feel that a lean certification will be helpful? Do you feel that um, just reading back on the, the resources that we put out here or, you know, following your, your website or, or, I mean... I mean, there's the self-study. We know that self-study is a thing, but not everybody can do self-study. So right. most people like to have some guidance from people that, you know, are experts and perhaps are providing this good information. Is there, I don't, I don't know that there is a human performance improvement degree out there. Well, uh, well there, there are at some, like Indiana, and I forget what they, what they call it. Indiana has things, Boise State has uh, uh, degrees that get into to things for learning professionals that go beyond that. So so learning is kind of a, a set of steps. If you're on the front end, you know, learning about performance, uh, project planning, uh, the PMI kinds of stuff you need to learn. If you're doing analysis, you need to understand things from maybe the quality movement. If you're in development, you need to learn about all the technology uh, tools for developing content and deploying content. And if you're if you're looking at uh, to me, analysis and evaluation are two sides of the same coin. So you can do a better job of evaluation if you've done a better job of analysis and understanding what performance are you trying to impact and all that. And I, of course, coming at this from an enterprise L and D and not an educational L and D perspective, workplace learning. Yeah. So yeah, the right. So, but so I think it, it kind of depends on where you want to, where you are 
where are you in L and D? What kinds of things are you doing? And where else do you want to go? Because there's many hats to be worn. You know, the project, the client interface and relationships, the project planning and management, the conducting of analysis, the design, the development of various kinds of media. And this gets quite complicated because of all the media that your your client or enterprise might be using, um, your facilitation skill. I mean, there's just so much that you need, but, you know, so you got to figure out where are you starting from? Are you are you in a role where you have to do it end to end? Or are you kind of a specialist? So generalist or specialist, and where do you want to go? So I think that this is where, you know, you can do the things that you would like to do, but but it's also important to whatever you're doing, learn about the upstream and downstream activities that are going on that you may or may not be a part of and and go where your your interests take you. You know, it's 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 less work if you're doing something that you like and love. Of course. So there's there's many sources, but it kind of depends on where you want to go. But there's many other professional societies and learning outside of your own domain can, can be very useful, I think. Absolutely. I think that's that, that's a great parting thought. Um, that's where my practice has obviously evolved. I always uh, I, I always have this thought of like, yeah, that's great. There's a few people talking about it in the industry. Where does this come from? What's the source? What can I learn from that source? So that's the point here. I start on origins. Look at the sources that you have on the episode. Guy Wallace, uh, follow Guy Wallace on LinkedIn and, um, you know, HPT Treasures. Uh, is it .net? That's the name of it. HPTTreasures.wordpress.com. Awesome. Links will be in uh, the episode. You can catch them there. We also have the LinkedIn newsletter comes out um, monthly. We might take it back to be bi-weekly. We'll see what the pace is and how we can do things. But uh, I want to thank, obviously, Guy for joining us today. And I want to thank you for listening. Make sure you uh, subscribe. And God bless everyone. Have a great time. And keep learning. Keep striving in performance so we can help people do their best.